Hello and welcome to another episode of This Is What Democracy Looks Like, a podcast about policies that could deepen democracy. Each week on this show, we welcome a guest on to teach us about a policy idea that could extend more power to more people in more ways, that could increase our voice in the forces that govern our lives, that could help us co-create our shared world, that could, in short, deepen democracy. I'm your host, Pete Davis, director of the Democracy Policy Network. This week, we're talking taxing the rich with Jenny Zhang. Let's go. Sing me a song. You break branches fold. Oh, the winter's been long in the summer of growing old. Jenny Zhang is here in the studio today. She is the chief of staff of New York Assemblymember Marcella Matenis and one of the leaders of New York DSA's Debt and Finance Working Group, which has been pushing a burgeoning Tax the Rich campaign over the past year in the State House. She's been involved in many great campaigns from the Lopez campaign to Michaela Wilkes, and she has seen how the rubber hits the road on transformative state policy work. Jenny, thank you so much for coming on today. Thanks for having me, Pete. Super excited. So glad to have you here. Before we get started with the Tax the Rich campaign, I'd love to just hear about how you got started in this type of transformative state policy work at all. We have a lot of listeners who are interested in getting involved, and you are a super citizen of sorts on this. So I'd love to hear your journey to being one of the great state policy advocates in New York. Yeah, I don't know if I definitely live up to that label, but I've been trying. So, you know, my my route to get to this policy area has been very windy been full of unexpected twists and turns. I think for me, starting on this job as chief of staff to assembly member meetings has in some ways been a long time coming in the sense that it is finally merging my political kind of interest, my political ideology with kind of my professional experience. So for a bit of background, for the last almost three years, I've been working as a policy analyst at the New York City Office of Management and Budget working on housing policy and budgetary impacts of housing policy and got to see from a kind of technocratic, mechanical perspective, how policy is made, how kind of policies are assembled in order to serve a broader purpose, um, whether that is delivering more affordable housing, whether that is trying to eliminate homelessness, whether that is trying to address our climate crisis. Saw how these pieces were put together in service of larger goals. At the same time, so I actually started my job at the Mayor's Office of Management and Budget right after AOC was elected back in 2018. And I think that event, at least for me, was an awakening as to there are some common sense ideas, such as healthcare for all, such as housing for all, that had not really previously been enunciated very strongly in the public discourse. And for me, AOC's election was a sign that there is something there People at large do take an interest in these common sense policies, um, and there's something that we can build to. But I think for me, the last three years has been really interesting seeing policymaking where it is today, some of these conventional wisdoms that we subscribe to in policymaking versus what I'm, what I'm calling kind of the outside game, these ambitious, what some people would say are radical policies that everyone is pushing for. And this whole way through, I think for the last two years, I've been trying to 
in my mind, figure out how those things can start to come together, um, how you can bring these two pods that are currently far away from each other, the state of the policy world as it is versus the state of the policy world as we think it very much could be in an ideal world in an optimistic case. It's been figuring out a lot of questions, trying to see what exactly are their levers within the policy world as it exists today that can be pushed and pulled in order to deliver us a world that is more just, where people have more fundamental economic rights, where there isn't as much suffering. And I think as democratic socialists, that is the world that we're fighting for. We are fighting for equality, not just economic equality, social equality, and also racial equality. And yeah, trying to map out that vision onto real policy tools, whether that's tax rates, whether that's interest rates, whether that's subsidy amounts, whether that's an application process, seeing how those two things come together. So that kind of dovetails right into my next question, which is before we get into this tax to the rich campaign, which is going to be the meat of our discussion, tell us about the DSA Debt and Finance Working Group. I've been very inspired by the Debt and Finance Working Group out of New York DSA because it's just churning out these very rigorous policies one after another. And mixing kind of this wonk skill of knowing the technical aspects of this with the classic DSA skill of knocking doors and doing organizing and building power to implement those wonky transformative policies. So I'd love to just hear about the history of the debt and finance working group and what's it been like being part of it. Yeah. So our working group is the DSA, New York City DSA debt and finance working group. We are just one of many different issue-based working groups that exist under the umbrella of New York City DSA. Most DSA branches have like a geographical component. For us, we have geographically based branches in Brooklyn and Manhattan, um, in the Bronx, in Queens. But then we also have this kind of other realm of the DSA structure, which is more organized according to issue interests. So we have a healthcare working group, a housing working group, eco-socialist working group, all these different racial justice, Afro-socialists, like all these different types of working groups. And DSA Debt and Finance is just one of them. We got started maybe, I want to say three years ago now. It was actually before my time. And we initially started out of wanting to organize people who were affected by debt. And that's a lot of us. Debtors getting together, trying to pull our collective power to make demands on banks, on the government. And over time, it's evolved from just addressing issues of debt. We have a debtor organizing campaign that has been going strong, organizing around consumer debt, student debt, medical debt. But now we've also added you know, a banking element. We have a campaign around public banking, trying to bring a public bank to New York State and specifically New York City as well. Tax the Rich is probably our newest campaign. It's been running for, I want to say, almost two years now. It's like dipping for the first time into fiscal policy. Do you have any advice to other DSAs or just any civic activists in other cities that want to organize around these kind of debt and finance and fiscal policy issues? What advice do you have to those who want to mix the rigors of working out a policy at a specific area and the organizing skills of uh, building power around that policy? Yeah. So I would say that the first piece of advice is just not to be intimidated. I think when you're dealing in this realm, oftentimes it gets very esoteric. It gets very technical. It seems almost unapproachable. And that was definitely a hurdle that we've encountered in all of our campaigns. But I guess my piece of advice would be don't let that freak you out. Don't let that deter you from doing something. And the way we've approached it is that people who have experienced kind of the brunt of these policies and how they're not working 
are equally entitled and qualified to comment on how the world should be and how these policies can be fixed. But obviously in areas like the ones we organize in, expertise is required. But I think more and more we're finding that on the left, there is actually a broad network of resources, of experts, of academics, people who have been in these spaces, been studying them from a technical perspective, which is very different from an everyday interacting with the policies, being affected by the policies type of perspective. And it's all about bringing all of that together. But you can start the organizing. What we found is that you can start the organizing without necessarily knowing all the answers. And that's been very much this journey, right? Like we started out thinking there should be something done on taxes. How can we engage with the state as socialists? How can we argue for these very fiscally ambitious policies if we don't have a view about taxes? And that was a bit of a surprise when we first realized that this is the state of play. The left in general is not very strong on like taxation policy. It's an area where the right has been able to dominate for like the past 50 years. We realized this very slowly and we, you know, learned as we went along that you can start to build knowledge collectively. You can start to grow the movement. You don't have to have all the answers figured out so long as you have an idea that there is a problem and there is something to be done about it. I think we've been able to make our biggest gains in the tax surge campaign because of how many people we've activated, because of how many people now understand the policies, view it as something that is achievable and view it as something that is necessary. There's no way like a small group of four people studying these things from a purely academic or technical perspective could have achieved that. Amen to yeah. that. So let's get into the brass tax. What is the Tax the Rich campaign? Yeah, so it is a legislative campaign at the New York state level where we are pushing for $50 billion in annual recurring new revenue for the state. And just to give you a sense of, because we throw around these words like billions, millions, what does it really mean? Just to give, give you a sense of the scale of ambition behind this campaign, this would be essentially doubling the tax revenues that New York State currently takes in today. So, you know, it's a campaign with specifically six legislative proposals. These are bills. These are policies translated into legal language that have been introduced in the New York State legislature. And yet, I guess very simply, the goal of this campaign is to get all of these six bills passed. And it was necessitated by, I think a lot of states are probably going through the exact same thing. We are in a moment of fiscal crisis. We are in a moment that is very similar to what happened in New York City in the 1970s, where through economic events, or in our case, healthcare, a health crisis, we are unable to raise the revenues that we need to sustain our public services. And so when a moment like this happens, we have two routes that we can pursue. One is what has happened historically, which is to cut public services to balance the budget. Cities and states are mandated to have balanced budgets, unlike the federal government. Or we can use this moment to say, actually, the level of public revenues we should be raising should be significantly higher. It is specifically in a moment like this that we need more resources. And there are plenty of those resources floating around in the state in the pockets of the very rich. That is the campaign in a nutshell. At its very core, it's a legislative campaign to pass six bills. And taxes are very important at the state level. I know it sounds like a truism to say this, you know, for our modern monetary theory listeners out there, at the federal level, there's more wiggle room on getting spending done without taxes, whereas in the state level, you are limited mostly to your budget. And that is determined by mostly your tax take. And so this is not just about increasing taxes for the sake of it, it's for 
giving you, if you're saying it's doubling the tax revenue, that's doubling the amount of things the public can do together, correct? Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. I think this is something that is not immediately obvious to people. And even took, I was working on the city budget, took me a while to understand why this is the case. But because states and localities don't have monetary sovereignty, they are not allowed to kind of deficit spend, which is what the federal government does. They run a deficit every year. There's some sort of assumption that the Federal Reserve can keep buying the bonds of the federal government. The currency is not going to collapse. And so they have the leeway to do that. States and municipalities, on the other hand, a lot of states actually are mandatorily chartered to keep balanced budgets. So this is a huge problem, especially in times of crisis. Because if you think about it, typically when a crisis occurs, no matter what type of crisis it is, um, one thing that's going to be impacted is your tax revenues. And it's specifically in those moments where you actually need more public funding support. We saw COVID hit in the middle of last year's budget, state budget, like season and negotiation process. And yeah, like the reality was just that Medicaid was going to be cut, education funding was going to be cut eight localities is going to be cut. Like at the state level, there is no other option. And if we wanted to unpack what we mean by like increasing taxes, it's not just one big thing. It's not like, oh, let's just hit the increase button on the taxes dial. It's split up into different types of taxes. And state tax policy is so under-discussed that I think it's actually worth opening some of these up. So I have six here. And let's start with the classic progressive income taxes. So we have a progressive income tax in in the federal government, but a lot of states, they don't get that progressive with their income taxes. Could you explain a progressive income tax to a layman who doesn't uh, really know what it is? Yeah, for sure. We have this term progressive in the political realm. That means you're like further along on the left. When we say progressive taxation, it actually has a completely different meaning. It is actually a technical taxation term. But the idea is super, it, it makes sense. So the basic idea is that the wealthier you are, the more money you're earning, the higher a percentage of the money you're earning you can afford to pay in taxes. So let's take an example. Let's say you have someone who's earning $50,000 a year. You have someone who's earning a million dollars a year. Both those people have to pay 5% of their income in taxes. Well, it's much, much easier for the person who's earning a million dollars a year to pay 5% of their income in taxes because they can already afford their necessities like food, like their rent, like travel costs, education costs. They have a lot more money left over so they can afford to be paying a higher tax rate. Versus the person who's making $50,000 a year, they might be rent burdened, they may be spending most of their income on just their day-to-day expenses, there's less money left over, disposable income to pay things like taxes. So the basic idea behind a progressive income tax is that the more you earn, the higher your tax rate should be. And as you said, at the federal level, that is definitely the case. We have a progressive income tax structure. However, what people don't notice is that at at the state level, Many states actually have, if not like actual literal flat taxes, which means like 4% of your income, regardless of what income level you're making. If it's not literally flat, it's almost flat. So like you have this situation in New York where, you know, for anywhere from earning 20K a year to a million dollars a year, you're essentially paying about 6.5% of your income in state taxes, no matter where you land on that spectrum. And so we kind of looked at that and we were just like, this is a flat tax structure flat tax structures are known to be regressive, which is the opposite of progressive. We can do a lot here to raise revenue, 
not only raise revenue, but just make our economic system a lot fairer by changing that to a progressive income tax system. Yeah, I'm looking at one of your documents, and I've seen this the same in my state, Virginia. The highest tax bracket, am I reading this right, is $21,000 a year? Not it's not exact. There's a, there's a, the highest tax bracket starts at, I believe, just over a million for a single filer and two million for married filers. But essentially, that should, that is the case, right? The difference between someone earning 20K a year and someone earning a million dollars a year is so minute. You're like yeah, yeah, at the yeah. percentage points, decimal points around the 6.5, right? It's so tiny that it might as well just not exist. Yeah. Okay. So that actually, my mistake shows how tiny it is. I'm looking at a graph and I hardly can perceive the difference between 21,000 and making a hundred million dollars percentage wise. And so listeners looking at your state tax brackets, you want to look at how high do these brackets go and how inside of each of those brackets, are we taking big progressive steps up in each of these? Um, And I bet you will find if you look, they're quite flat. Let's go to the next one capital gains taxes. Could you explain that to our listener? Yeah. So this one I love talking about. I think after a lot of uh, deliberation, it is definitely my favorite because of the potential that it has to educate people about just the gross injustices that are going on in our tax code. So at a very high level, basically what's going on is in our economy, according to our tax system, there are two ways that you can make money. There are two key ways that you as an individual can earn income. You can either earn it from working. So this is like your labor. This is like things like your wages, your salary you earn every year, your hourly rate. Or the second way of making income is through what we call capital gains, which is essentially through making investments, through betting on things like the stock market, through investing in real estate private equity firms, through more passive types of activity where you park your money somewhere, you just wait, you chill, you might have an investment manager or something like that. That money grows in value without you having to work for it. And then you cash out on the money that you've made. So there's two types of different income and they're categorized very differently in the federal tax code. You have ordinary income, which is your income from labor and wages. It's taxed at a much higher rate than capital gains income. During the Obama years, I believe the highest income tax rate on ordinary income was about 40%. The highest on capital income was 20%. You're taxing labor income at double the rate of capital income. So that's just one way in which our economic system, our political system rewards those who already have. Because if you can afford to invest, it means you already have assets. You're already, you already have some level of wealth. It rewards them at the expense of people who are primarily relying on working, relying on their salary, their labor in order to earn their annual living. So what we propose to do with the capital gains proposal for the New York state level, we can't influence federal policy directly. But what we're saying is that there is this huge injustice in the federal tax code. We can actually adjust for that injustice at the state level. We can offset that full difference, that full injustice and imbalance at the state level by taxing capital gains at a higher rate. So that's what this bill proposes to do is even it all out, all in, super elegant. Yeah. I love that because it's a way a state policy can make up for federal policy failures. So Mm -hmm. if tax the rich New York's campaign was successful for this capital gains tax, 
capital gains and wage income would be taxed the same total because New York made up the difference if you lived in New York. Wow. Okay. So let's go to the next one. Another revealing aspect of how wealth inequality happens, the inheritance tax. Talk to us about the inheritance tax, Jenny. Yeah. So this one is super exciting. It's probably the proposal where we've done the most amount of like innovative policy development and new policy development. It's a long process, got stressful at times, but I think what we have is something that we can all be really proud of. At the New York State level, our taxation of intergenerational wealth transfers is really flawed. And I think what we're realizing as a society is that so much wealth is just handed down from family to family, like generation to generation. I think it's like half of all wealth that exists in the United States is either gifted or bequeathed. It's not like you as an individual have generated it yourself. It's that you've been given it from a relative, your family, your grandma, like whatever it may be. Wealth distribution, wealth inequality is obviously one of the biggest issues plaguing our society today. One really great mechanism we have to address this is taxation. Just so happens that most states and even the federal government don't take the taxation of intergenerational wealth transfer super seriously. Over the past 20 years, there's been this huge movement at the federal and state levels to make these these mechanisms that we have much less effective. All that to say, the current situation in New York State is that we have a very relatively weak estate tax. What this means is that someone is taxed when they hand on their hand over their estate when they pass away. They want to leave their estate. Um, for their kids or grandkids, whatever it may be. We don't actually tax any estates less than about $6 million, meaning that if you inherit a $5.5 million estate, that is all essentially comes into your pocket tax-free. And some people might think this is just. I think we're starting to get at ideas of what exactly is just when it comes to intergenerational wealth transfer. But if you think about a person who's earning an income, whether it's from their wages, whether it's from their capital gains, as we were talking about before, All of that gets taxed. On the other hand, an inheritance is essentially unearned income. It's also income that's coming to you, but it hasn't been earned through labor, through just sitting on your investment portfolio. It has been almost just like a blessing of birth that you probably came across that chunk of money. And we think that inheritances should be taxed at least at the same level, if not higher than actually earned forms of income. So what this proposal seeks to do is do exactly that. An inheritance is treated as income um, in the state tax code. We have progressive rates, I think, going from, so it kicks in at about 250K. So you can inherit up to 250K tax-free. From that point, it starts to kick in at a very low rate, about 5%, going up all the way to 50% of inheritances above $10 million. So we're talking about like giant inheritances. We run the numbers. Most people don't even receive inheritances. I think it's something like 70 to 80% of individuals will never receive an inheritance that has different effects by race. This is definitely affecting the top 1%. And those very high rates of 50% are the like 1% of the 1%. It's a very progressive tax that we think will start to address this issue of wealth accumulation, intergenerational wealth transfer. What I was so taken for by your write-ups on the wealth tax is just how I would describe it as utterly reasonable it is because you have these images, these boogeymen of left taxers coming to take everything for the government or something. But you look at this write-up, if your inheritance is you love the beloved farm that your grandfather passed down, you have a beloved family business that you want to keep going, if you even have just your beloved house that your parents in and it goes to you, that is exempt under your proposal. So it really is 
99% of people would not say this is like some horrible breaking of sentimental transfers. It's mostly yeah. like the fourth house that Donald Trump passes down to someone else. Yep, exactly. We designed this text with working class people in mind. We want to protect the working class. We don't want to penalize someone for their parents having bought a brownstone that is appreciated in value. So we exempt a primary residence, we exempt family farms, we exempt small businesses, as you mentioned earlier. We're trying to get at that super hyper wealth that has implications for not just an economic system, but also political power. We've seen how the Trumps were able to mass political power as a function of primarily wealth. So we're trying to go for those big portfolios. And I think that's reflected in kind of the structure of this tax. Wonderful. We're going to rapid fire through some others, but there's still more taxes to come here. We're <laughs> going to try to make this the most exciting episode on taxes we can. Yeah. Wealth tax amendment. What I loved about this one is you pointed out, we already have a wealth tax called property taxes. It's just mm -hmm. designed to mostly affect middle-class wealth, like middle-class property owners. Could you talk about this wealth tax amendment? Yeah. So this is one where we actually have to do a constitutional amendment in order to have a real wealth tax in the future. And this is one where the particularities about the New York State Constitution and just how we've chosen to legislate our tax code comes into play heavily. So there is this constitutional provision from 1938 that says New York State is not allowed to levy a tax on intangible assets. What I mean by that is you have certain assets that are tangible, things like a house, things like a property um, that you may run as a landlord, but you have a lot of assets that are intangible in the sense that they are not something physical. So this might be ownership in a company, ownership of bonds, ownership of stocks, of derivatives, any type of financial asset that is not like a physical thing you can touch. So what New York State went and did back in 1938 is said that we're not allowed to, we're going to put this thing in the constitution that forbids us from ever levying a tax on intangible wealth, stocks and portfolios um, of the wealthy. And they did this because at the time they wanted to turn New York into a global financial center. And we're at the point now, almost a hundred years later, where that has happened. Like New York is a global financial center and we live some of the drawbacks of that in terms of financial crises, in terms of housing being really unaffordable. This is a long legacy of us trying to create room in our state to accommodate financial elite at the expense of ordinary working class people. So as you said earlier, we do have a wealth tax already in the form of a property tax, property, tangible property, so it can be taxed. So people, if you're a homeowner, if you're, you run a store and you own the property, you get taxed as a percentage of the value of your property every year. You get that on your property tax bill. Whereas someone who's really wealthy, yes, someone who has $100 million in wealth, Yes, they might have three to four multi-million dollar mansions, but the vast majority of their wealth is actually sitting in these intangible assets, these stocks, these ownership interests in companies, and that cannot be taxed. So what you end up having is a property tax system that is actually very regressive. It penalizes those with less property. If you are a homeowner, that's likely to be your biggest source of your assets, your wealth. You're not likely to have a huge stock portfolio outside of it. So this is over time, we found that this has this is a really regressive tax. And the only way to change it, because it is in the Constitution, is to really go for this constitutional amendment. Two more, um, and I'll say them at the same time so we can knock them both out. The financial yes. transactions tax and the fair corporate taxes. Could you talk a little bit about each of those? Yeah. So the financial transactions tax is an idea that has existed. It's implemented in other countries other big financial centers, such as London and Hong Kong. 
it's a small tax on the trading of financial assets. So anything from a stock, a bond, a derivative, we take less than one percentage point of the value of that trade and collect it in taxes. And given how crucial the financial industry is to New York State, as we see it today, this has the potential to be a huge revenue generator for New York State. We actually used to have a very similar tax on the books from about 1905 to 1981 called the stock transfer tax. It was repealed because the stock exchanges threatened to go and leave the state. Lawmakers got scared. They took that at face value, even though the New York Stock Exchange is still here alongside many other exchanges. We want to bring that back, but also modernize it to cover not just stocks. We are in a much more complex kind of financial landscape today where there's a lot of derivative instruments, option trading is a big thing. So we want to be able to cover that as well. Very simple tax. You can think of it as like a sales tax on trade. And what about to bring us home this fair corporate taxes? Yeah, there's a state level corporate tax similar to a federal level corporate tax. It's a little more complicated, but essentially if you are a business doing business in your state, there is a state level kind of corporate income tax. What we're saying here is that we want to repeal. So for those who don't know, in 2017, Trump passed a huge sweeping tax reform one of the pieces of that tax reform was to cut the corporate tax rate at the federal level from 35% to 21%. This was a huge cut, like a third of a rate cut. When no one was asking for it, corporations weren't even asking for it. It was viewed as just like a very obvious, in-your-face handout to corporations. We can actually undo that at the state level by adding that same 14% back to the state level tax rate. So that's exactly what this bill proposed to do. At the state level, it does seem aggressive given that our state corporate tax rate is about 6.5%. This would be bringing it up by 14 percentage points. There is no debating about that. That is exactly what it is. If you take a step back and zoom out, what this would mean is that businesses are paying the same tax rates all in as they did three years ago. And three years ago, that was viewed to be totally fine, totally normal, totally just. We can totally start to undo Trump's giveaway at the state level. To finish us off, do you, for folks that want to fight for taxing the rich in the other 49 and plus more states and uh, uh, territories and districts, do you have any advice to them after witnessing firsthand how you're fighting for this in New York? Yeah, I would say that you can't have big change without a popular movement. Like inevitably, that's what is going to be required. And for us, it was a big hump to get over. Do we? Do people really want to hear about taxes? Do they really want to learn how these structures are unjust today? But I would say I've been so pleasantly surprised at just how interested people are in this stuff. So I would say it may seem tough to try to turn taxes into a popular movement, but it is very doable. As soon as people realize this is where it's at, if we're talking about funding, universal health care, we have the New York Health Act at the New York state level. We're talking about things like building social housing, getting rid of homelessness. So many of our priorities are fiscal priorities that require funding. And so we're going to have to engage on these issues and people want to engage. They want to learn how this stuff all works. So, yeah, that would be my um, advice. And definitely get in touch with us. We are at Tax the Rich at Socialist.NYC. We've connected with a lot of different CSA chapters around the country already who are also trying to start burgeoning kind of efforts to do something similar. I think we're stronger together. We can learn from each other. So yeah, definitely connect. Don't be too disheartened. It is a surmountable challenge. And yeah, I hope to see this kind of stuff pop off all around the country. 
Thank you so much, Jenny Zhang. So appreciate you coming on. This is what democracy looks like. Thank you, Pete.